This podcast may contain explicit language. Hi, folks. Just a quick note that while we promised to bring you Bringing Up Baby this week, we're going to have to move that back just a week because, unfortunately, I got COVID this week. So this is an episode that Dana and I did a few weeks back in preparation for just a situation like this for Meet the Parents, and we hope to bring everything that we normally do next week when uh, I feel a little bit better and up to doing a full episode. So in the meantime, please enjoy Meet the Parents without the normal in memoriam and a few other little things that I'm sure you expect on a weekly basis from us. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight we discuss Meet the Parents from 2000, directed by Jay Roach, written by Greg Gliana, I think it is. I hope that's the pronunciation. And Mary Ruth Clark, starring Ben Stiller as Gaylord Greg Fokker, Robert De Niro as Jack Burns, Terry Polo as Pam Burns, Blythe Danner as Dina Burns, Nicole DeHuff as Debbie Burns, John Abrahams as Denny Burns, Owen Wilson as Kevin Raleigh, James Rebhorn as Larry Banks, Thomas McCarthy as Bob Banks, and Phyllis George as Linda Banks. Recognition for this movie? Meet the Parents was released on October 6, 2000. It made an estimated $330 million on a budget of roughly $55 million. Man, were those the days for comedy making it, at the time, the highest-grossing film of Robert De Niro's career. It would be surpassed four years later by what? The Departed? No, he wasn't in The Departed. Four years later, for De Niro. Um... The sequel! Meet the Fockers! Oh, yeah, okay. That is the highest-performing or highest-grossing Robert De Niro career film. (laughs) Yes, the seat... Scene with his uh, circumcision. Ugh. You mean foreskin? <laughs> yes. Anyway. Meet the Parents would go on to be the seventh highest grossing film of 2000. It was also nominated for one Oscar for what? Boy. I'm not sure. Was it um, screenplay? Original song for Randy Newman. <laughs> okay. A Fool in Love. Yes. The film has also received mostly positive reviews and eventually was recognized by the American Film Institute on its 2005 list, 100 Years, 100 Movie Quotes, with the nominee, Jack Burns, I have nipples, Greg, could you milk me? (laughs) Meet the Parents currently holds an 84% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 73 score on Metacritic, and a 3.2 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So, Dad... What do you remember about meeting Grandpa and Grandma for the first time? Well, let's see. Did he pull the traditional, it's so nice of you to meet me? No, he didn't. Okay. Because he was he didn't even feign pleasantry. Ooh. So he uncle bucked you. He was just a, an old crank sitting in his, his green swivel chair near where the the chair sat. If you remember Grandpa and Grandma's old house. Not much. The kitchen was around the corner, and then you came and there was a small wall, then you got into the living room. The chair sat just on the other side of that. So you could literally pivot the chair from the living room and face the dining room table. And he sat there and just kind of turned and kind of glared at me a little bit. And then, uh, let me think now. He didn't say much. I tried to make small talk. It was not going well. So I just kind of figured I would just sit there and be quiet. Mom decided to play the piano and sing. And um, he said, do you play an instrument? I said, no. Oh, I sing. Oh, and that was the extent of our conversation till dinner. So how far into dating did you actually meet him? Uh, like the second time or second day. Okay. So it was kind of like I came up on the, well, mom and I met 
the summer before, we started talking on the phone. So that was our preliminary dating. I came up to see her on the 30th of December and picked her up from work. We had our first real date having pizza at Pizza Hut. And then, then that was the 31st. We had dinner with her parents. And then we went in her car and sat under granddad's bluff and watched the fireworks. So it was at some point, I think it was like the next night we watched a movie and then... Uh, that's the infamous Young Frankenstein story? No, that's the infamous... Your mother brought home some sh- stupid schlock movie uh, because the it read cute on the box. And um, she's gotten in the habit lately of sending me all of these like Facebook shareables on these upcoming rom-coms that all look terrible, but that I would watch because I watch really trashy rom-coms. Oh, but it sounds so good. <laughs> yeah, Hallmark movie. Oh, no, no, no. These, these are potentially worse than Hallmark movies. At least Hallmark movies steer exactly into knowing what they are. These are like high production value stuff that has no clue or no self-awareness as to what they are. <laughs> yeah. Anchors on people's careers. Maybe that's what they are. No. The thing is, unless you make a truly spectacular bomb... Most times people don't remember the bad shit you do. Mm. Yeah, I guess. Nobody remembers who's in Ishtar. Well, I mean, to be fair, Robert De Niro's third highest grossing movie is Shark Tale. What? The third highest grossing movie that he was a part of is called Shark Tale. It was a animated film starring Will Smith from like 2005 about a fish. I've never heard of it. Yeah, I think I saw it in theaters. I mean, that's legitimately what I'm saying. Do you remember any of the other bombs of his career? I certainly can't. And if you start just naming actors, unless it's like Tom Hanks, because a lot of his have been really spectacular bombs of the last few years, like Larry Crown. Yeah. And the, uh, what was the one about, was it the airport? No, the terminal. And even that made a lot of money, because that's like early Tom Hanks yet. When he was still America's, like, da- before he was America's dad, he was everybody's leading man. And that's a Steven Spielberg film, like, just after Catch Me If You Can. That's before he goes even into his weird, I will do anything for Bob Zemeckis run, where he's in, like, Polar Express. <laughs> yeah. Well, De Niro was quite interesting as Boris Badenoff in uh, the Rocky and Bullwinkle movie. Okay, well, fair enough. But I'm just saying, unless you're in a truly spectacularly bad film that is almost like a cult to itself, you just don't really remember a lot of the big bombs for people. So you can take chances on stuff, even if it doesn't pan out, because who knows what the next you know big unusual film is going to be the next everything everywhere all at once type of movie wasn't uh, Clooney in a in a Tarantino film like Dusk to Dawn or something like that it was Tarantino written it was not actually directed by him that was in his early phase when he would still write screenplays for other people like he did True Romance I think was a screenplay by him but I think it's directed by somebody else I can't remember who I just remember that listening to Siskel and Ebert after reviewing this and going that it was a piece of garbage and that if Clooney didn't start doing a better job of picking his films, his career will be over before it starts. But think about Clooney films. He hasn't done anything since about the mid-2000s that was truly a great leading vehicle for him. Uh, He did Up in the Air, I think, was the last time he did a film that had any level of quality. Yeah. I, and I think that's maybe the outlier because the last other movie I can think of right before that that would have any level of quality would have been Ocean's 13. But Syriana was like 2004, 2005. 2006 or 2005 would have been his directorial debut and every movie since then has been terrible that he's directed. And that was personal favorite of ours that we'll eventually cover on the show, Good Night and Good Luck. Yes, But, you know, his biggest thing that he did correctly was 
I'm going to be in a bunch of heist films with Steven Soderbergh. He did Out of Sight, and then he did the Oceans movie. Yeah. Well, and I know for a fact that after he had kids, he personally decided to take some time off. And for a while, he was having health problems, having been in or injured his back doing Syriana. I know. He had talked about his uh, issues with uh, suicide contemplation, I believe. Yeah. And that was after he had the plastic surgery to have his balls ironed. <laughs> sure. All right. Comedies often have a, an issue. We've discussed comedies just broadly before that the premise can work, but the jokes don't always hold up. I think this actually holds up pretty well, personally. I mean, there are some issues I'm going to take with some classicness going, you know, I mean, it's 23 years removed, but I think that they hold up particularly well if they have a universality in its premise. What is it about this movie that feels somewhat universal? Every guy who has to meet his father-in-law has an initial problem because you feel like you're being completely judged. You're very uncomfortable. You're trying to impress and you press trying to be, I don't know, gracious or kind or interesting, whatever you want to say. And it comes across being very disingenuous and the fathers always come out as being hypercritical and especially if they have a good relationship with their daughter because no guy is ever good enough. Unfortunately, what they don't tend to see is, is that that sometimes comes across in these films like this is the way the boyfriend is similar to the father-in-law. That's a good point. I guess I hadn't necessarily thought of it that way, although that tends to be somewhat Freudian. And I think most films would want to shy away from doing anything Freudian uh, in, a, in a modern sense. But I have not really come across this problem once. I was only close to meeting one other father of somebody I was dating at the time. And because I wasn't really sure about the relationship at the time, I kind of backed out of it. It was already somewhat harrowing for me, which is why I felt that uh, I needed to make a decision on the relationship at the time sooner rather than later. Because if you pull out of something like that, you know, even at an early stage, it kind of throws up some warning signals. So I kind of knew that it was not necessarily something that was going to last if that was going to be the case. And I was kind of freaking out about it. So I don't know if there will be another situation like that for me or when it may happen. But I think that's the thing that's the truest about this is that father-in-laws or the fathers of, I guess in this case, daughters, but we could extend it a little bit further now. I know they take on very stereotypical roles where the mother's much more supportive and the father-in-law is trying to find every bad thing about you in order to take you out of the dating pool. But I, I think that's what works for this movie, even if there are other parts that haven't aged well. And we'll obviously get to that as we go along. So what is this movie about? I think what I specifically said, it's the conflict between uh, boyfriends and and their potential fathers-in-law and the relationship and whatever between them that parents look at their potential children's spouses as being unworthy of their children. And it's kind of an internal conflict that exists. The number of times I've seen couples uh, meet their potential or their child's boyfriend or girlfriend and then look at each other and raise their eyebrows like, what the hell is this guy or this girl? That's what it's primarily about. It's that tension that always exists. Well, I remember this being sold as somewhat of an exaggerated version of that, because really, if you're selling this as a comedy, you're presenting that fairly universal feeling of meeting the girlfriend's parents for the first time. But then I remember the movie being sold to me or described to me as not only is it something that's fairly universal for everybody, but then let's make the father-in-law one of the scariest propositions in the world. He used to work for the CIA. They, it took it to an extreme. But I mean, I remember meeting mom's uncle, L. We went to visit in Minnesota and L or she introduced me as her fiance and then walks off. And I'm standing there, L's on a ladder with a hammer in his hand. And he goes, 
does Ron know that you're her fiance? And he's got this, and he's like on a ladder standing over me with a hammer. And I'm going, uh, yeah, he does. Well, okay. And then he proceeds to go back to his carpentry, which I can understand that could be a very creepy moment because my great uncle L is not a man to uh, show all of his emotion on his sleeve. He can be very stoic in his expressions. Yes. So. Well, anyway, let's dig further into the movie. Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. Craig Fokker, Ben Stiller, wants to propose to his girlfriend, Pam Burns, Terry Polo. But before he can, Pam finds out that her sister is engaged and her husband-to-be has asked her father's permission, causing Greg to rethink his plan. Because the wedding is the following weekend, Pam and Greg fly to Long Island to meet her parents, Jack, Robert De Niro, and Dina Burns, Blythe Danner, for the first time. He soon learns that Jack is overprotective and more than a bit intense. Greg, hoping to win Jack's approval, makes a series of blunders, only driving a wedge between he and Jack. Will Greg right the ship and gain Jack's approval? Thank you. Did you know? This movie is actually a remake of Meet the Parents from 1992, an independent film. The 75-minute short film starred Greg Gliana and Mary Ruth Clark, credited as the writers of the story, who also wrote the script. Gliana also directed the film on a budget of about $100,000. Unable to find a distributor for their film, they eventually sold the rights to Universal Pictures. Did you know? Greg Gliana did not come up with the surname Fokker. Greg's character in the original film did not have a last name. The name was written into the script after Jim Carrey came up with the idea for the Fokker surname during a creative session held before he abandoned the project. Once Meet the Parents was submitted for rating evaluation, the Motion Picture Association of America, the MPAA, questioned the surname Fokker as possibly an expletive, and due to the repetitiveness of the surname throughout the film, it was in danger of being rated R according to the Motion Picture Association of America. The filmmakers were asked if they had made up the name or if they could prove that such a name exists. The studio submitted to the MPAA a list of real people with the surname Fokker, which ensured that the film retained a PG-13 rating. Did you know? When Ben Stiller came on board, the script was retooled. Originally, it had been written for Jim Carrey, so it contained more physical knockabout comedy. Stiller's style is less physical, so this element in the script was rewritten. Did you know? Ben Stiller flew out to Los Angeles to propose to his then-girlfriend, Christine Taylor, while shooting the film. She thought he was still in New York City, and he surprised her at home with a path of candles and rose petals. Did you know? The role of Pam Burns was initially given to Naomi Watts. She ultimately lost the role to Terry Polo, however, because the filmmakers did not think she was quote-unquote sexy enough. Did you know? When Greg says grace at the dinner table, it is actually the song Day by Day, from the award-winning musical Godspell, which was playing over the speakers in the store in the previous scene. Did you know? This is the only film in the trilogy in which Pam's sister, Deborah Burns, appears on screen, though she is frequently mentioned in all of the films. Nicole DeHuff, the actress who played her, died in 2005. This explains her absence in Little Fockers from 2010, but not Meek the Fockers from 2004. Did you know? When Steven Spielberg and Jim Carrey were attached to the project, Al Pacino was set to play Jack Burns. Also, Anthony Hopkins and Christopher Walken were also considered for Jack. One final note that's not in our official Did You Know section, but Tom McCarthy from this film, and it was really one of the few things that I knew him as an actor from, has gone on to direct a Best Picture film. Do you know the film? No. You should. We've done it on the show. I don't remember. Spotlight. Oh, okay. So with that, we will take our first break and we will be right back. That brings us to best performance. This could go to either one of the two primary actors, and I don't think we would have much complaint. I ended up choosing Robert De Niro, and my best secondary is Ben Stiller. I really don't think that you could go in any other direction having both of them as your best and secondary performances because the chemistry between the two and how central they are to basically all three films is what really props these up. 
I went the other direction. I went with Stiller. And the only reason was is he had to be a little bit more, had a little bit more range of motion. He had to go from also being kind of serious at times to being goofy to being over the top. I mean, he had a little more range than De Niro, who could just kind of be a crustacean, just a crouchy old guy. I definitely can see why you would go that way. The thing I thought of, especially towards the latter half of the movie, that that made me put De Niro as best performance, it's actually a Robert De Niro film. I know we're following Ben Stiller's character the most during the film, but the real cathartic moment is not from Ben Stiller. It's from Robert De Niro realizing he's got to loosen up. I know. I, I did catch that. He's the one person who becomes introspective in the film. And it really mirrors the second film. I've never actually seen the third film, but the second film is very much in a certain capacity. He needs to, again, allow himself to trust people. And I think the linchpin to this movie is the quote, Greg, do you think you can trust anybody? And he's, yeah, I think you can trust people. No, you definitely cannot. And spoken like a true CIA man. I saw all three films, by the way. And I think I saw all three films at the theater. Okay. Well, I know that uh, we watched Meet the Fockers, and when we went to see it, it was you, me, Uncle Steve, and Uncle John. And Uncle John didn't know it was a sequel. Oh, okay. We were in Minnesota, and I can't remember why we were all together on a particular weekend. I want to say it was like for Easter or whatever, and we were getting pictures with Grandma and Grandpa that weekend, but like all the women were doing something, and all the cousins were like playing downstairs, so they're like, do you guys just want to go see a movie? Because we're sitting around bored and there's nothing else to do. So like the four of us went to a movie. Probably the only time the four of us have ever hung out together. The uh, the last sequel or the meet or Little Fockers. That's where Jack has this elaborate um, spy uh, mobile home that he's. No, driving. that's the second one. That's the second one. Yep. Okay, well, I'm trying to remember the third one. I thought he was in that one, too, because they have the baby with them. That's the second one, because he's looking after Debbie's son, and that's the whole ferbering and the kid. His first word is, asshole. Yeah, okay. Maybe I haven't seen the third one, then, actually. It came out, like, while I was in college, and I remember that... Port Edwards went to it for Christmas or whatever. Like the day before Christmas, they used to rent out the theater and send all the kids to the movies or whatever. Yes. I remember we saw my junior year, it was I Am Legend with Will Smith. And I think my senior year, we watched Matthew McConaughey's We Are Marshall. Mm. But I still have never seen it. And I don't even know where it would be available since we had to rent this one at this point in time. Yeah. Which is surprising, given how popular I still think these films are. Most charismatic for me, I went Robert De Niro too, because I just think he's the funniest part of this movie. He has such a dry sense of humor, but it reminds me a lot of how you've described certain people coming into Airplane, like Peter Graves or Leslie Nielsen, that had done serious parts for their entire career and then just decided they were going to do comedy. And because you expect and have this relationship with them, that they're such a hard ass that it's hilarious when they actually do comedy? Well, I, I've had that problem because people just assume being a lawyer that I'm going to be very serious and stern. And like, I'll get on like village board and I'll make jokes and people will look at each other like, was that a joke or what? It's not just that you're a lawyer so that you're serious because there are plenty of lawyers that are jovial. It's the demeanor with which you carry yourself. <laughs> That's why you can't understand why people are intimidated by you, but you always have this just almost menacing growl on your face half the time. And when you do smile, even you've admitted you look creepy. Well, I've learned uh, from from uh, uh, a uh, lecture on, on being friendly that you need to smile with your eyes. Yes, you need to relax them. Don't be intense. Yes, you don't need to move your mouth as much as you need to light or relax your eyes yeah if you want to know how not to smile watch the movie smile from last year the horror film <laughs> okay who did you go as most charismatic uh, de niro i mean okay. 
he's he always dominates any scene he's in. So for a movie that's been with me for at least 20 years, I would have thought there would have been just a bunch of different best scenes to try and choose from. And I was surprised that it actually took me a little bit of work to even come up with the eight that I have. Because really, this is around maybe three or four really good set pieces. And I know there are a lot of jokes, but it doesn't seem like there are anything more than transitional pieces in between certain other films. So the first one I had down, because the first part of this movie is not really that funny, it's just kind of the setup. Really, until you meet the parents, does this movie even really take off? So the first one I have down as a true scene was to the drugstore and back where they're awkwardly forced to kind of interact and it's the Puff the Magic Dragon, then it's the stuff in the store, and etc, etc. Then I have, and this is also my favorite scene, Dinner with the Parents. There are so many good parts of that movie, or of that particular scene, from the poem, to the milking, to the uh, cat squatting in the ashes, there's just so many different pieces of that that I think are memorable from this movie. Yes. Then I have the lie detector test, which is famous for the poster. Kevin's house, pool volleyball, which eh, give or take. I mean, it, it's a scene that's somewhat memorable, but there aren't a lot of real great gags in it until obviously the uh, spike at the end. The car chase, final confrontation, which is them coming back to find Jinx has torn the entire house up, or at least the den, and the red-eye flight, which I'll just kind of encompass to be basically when Greg is uh, confronted with the ticket taker all the way up through that kind of like final uh, stare down with Jack. In thinking about this, there's one small part that I forgot, and that's that early nanny cam scene where he accidentally has the bear looking up Blythe Danner's skirt. But other than that... Did I miss anything? No. Okay. So what is the best scene? Uh, Jack's lair with the lie detector test. I, I loved that scene. I just thought it so characterized the whole movie itself and was a summary. I have that as my most indelible moment because of how much it kind of became the oversized thing of what happened in this movie. It was part of the posters. It was part of the advertising campaign and the rest of it. And it made sense for your persona with De Niro up to this point. But I still think that dinner scene is probably the best for me just because of the amount of things that go on during that dinner and how awkward it is. And really, that's the universal part for me is that first really awkward dinner where, oh, Greg's Jewish. And so then you have him pray. And <laughs> he can't think of anything because he clearly has never done it before. And they're talking about his dead mother and... There are so many pieces of that that feel authentic to every guy's experience with the parents for the first time. I can understand your your point. Favorite scene for you? I already said it. Same one. Mine's the dinner scene. Because, again, I, I, uh, I remember so many of those early dinners and some of the things that were said and done that were very awkward. Your, your mother and I can, I, I would make a joke after about the first, second or third night that we were having dinner, I could make a joke and get your grandfather to laugh, and your mother wouldn't get it, which has been kind of a... A staple. Yeah, for 35 years. So I used to even do the thing with where I'd take my hand and go like this over her head like this, and she'd go, what are you doing? I, um, never mind. For those that uh, can't see Dana because this is an audio medium, not a video medium. He was waving his hand over his head to simulate a joke going over their head. Thank you. You're welcome. Anyway, so my most indelible moment is the same. Is the dinner scene or the lie detector? Because I went with lie detector just for how outsized it is in, I guess, the selling of this movie. I the, When you ask me that, the first thing that always comes back into my head is... Well, I have nipples, Greg. Can you milk me? All right, we'll take our second break, and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our Master Greatest Movies of All Time list that has every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, 
There's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, or you can go to RonnieDuncanStudios.com backslash Gmote podcast and find it as the top entry on our show page. That has the grades we've done so far for all the movies we've graded, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Let's go to best funniest lines. First one I have down, Dina Burns. I had no idea you could milk a cat. Greg. Oh, you can milk just about anything with nipples. Jack. I have nipples, Greg. Could you milk me? Kevin Raleigh. I guess I would have to say Jesus. He was a carpenter, and I just figured if you're going to follow in someone's footsteps, who better than Christ? Might have to work a little bit on your own, Wilson, but it's not the worst impression you've ever done. Wow. Thank you. Jack Burns. My Mother by Jack Burns. You gave me life. You gave me milk. You gave me courage. Your name was Angela, the angel from heaven. But you were also an angel of God, and he needed you too. Selfishly, I tried to keep you here, while the cancer ate away your organs like an unstoppable rebel force. But I couldn't save you, and I shall see your face nevermore, nevermore, nevermore. Until we meet in heaven. Yes, by the way, isn't a poem supposed to at least either have a rhyme or some sort of, like, pattern? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the structure is. It could have been a haiku. Oh, okay. That's the answer to everything. If it's poorly done, it's a haiku. <laughs> because nobody <laughs> understands how to actually do one. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Jack Burns, I'm a realist. I understand it's the 21st century, and you've probably had premarital relations with my daughter. But under our roof, it's my way or the Long Island Expressway. Is that understood? Of course, yeah. Good. Keep your snake in its cage for 72 hours. Jack, oh geez, I just thought of something. Dina, what? Pam's middle name. Martha. Oh no. Pamela Martha Fokker. Jack, I thought your name was Greg. Greg, it is. Late Night Courier. That's not what it says here. Greg, Gaylord is my legal name. Nobody's called me that since third grade. Denny, wait a minute. So your name is Gay Fokker? I thought about putting that one down, but it's one of the things that's aged the worst about this movie. I know, but it's still, I just always remember that line. Jack. I mean, can you ever really trust another human being, Greg? Sure, I, I think so. No, the answer is you cannot. Jack, Greg, why don't you like cats? I I, 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 I don't like cats. I, I, I just, I, I prefer dogs. I mean, I'm just more of a dog kind of, you know. Come home, wagging their little tails, happy to see you kind of. Oh, you need that assurance, do you? You prefer an emotionally shallow animal. You're not going to finish it? Oh, I guess I missed the, it's on the next page. I, you see, Greg, when you yell at a dog, his tail goes between his legs and covers his genitals. His ears will go down. A dog is very easy to break, but cats make you work for their affection. They don't sell out the way dogs do. See, I figured you'd put that on here, given your relationship to your animals currently. How they've pretty much run your life. I got up to use the bathroom this morning and went back to get into bed. And all three of them were up on the bed in my place, laying on top of your mother, getting pets. Sounds about right. Greg. Oh, dear God. Thank you. You are such a good God to us. A kind and gentle and accommodating God. And we... Thank you, oh sweet, sweet Lord of Hosts, for the smorgasbord you have so aptly lain at our table this day, and each day, by day, day by day, by day. Oh dear Lord, three... <laughs> I can't do this without breaking, I just can't. Three things we pray. To love thee more dearly. <laughs> I'm just seeing De Niro's face. 
To see thee more clearly, to follow thee more nearly, day by day by day. Amen. (laughs) That's all I have. All right, I have one more. Pam, take it easy on the sarcasm. Humor is entirely wasted on my parents. What are they, Amish? (laughs) Yeah. All right, let's go to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. Do you want to go first or second? Go ahead. All right. As far as a legacy, these were pretty big in the moment, so I'm going to have much higher for the impact significance. I think they have significantly waned over time. I remember growing up with these movies, and obviously due to the sequels, I think they had a certain cultural importance. But as we've seen over the last 10 to 15 years, comedies have just declined significantly. Not only are they really not being made, I just don't know how many people know how to make them right now. I just don't see the comedy influence that there was during the 90s and 2000s and even the 80s for stuff that's just mainstream comedy. There just is not a group of comedians that is really coming up with material for movies. If anything, we've had a stand-up comedy boom over the last seven or so years, basically since the beginning of the Trump campaign and into the Trump presidency, that I think has kind of formed the new realist comedy that because of the absurdity of real life, we just can't put ourselves in these situations. But we also just don't have a comedy development. So putting this in context, I think from an industry standpoint, it doesn't necessarily age well. And because this isn't on the level of quite a few of the bigger comedies of the 2000s that would come out, despite its place in that moment in time, I just think that this falls short of other movies that are much more memorable or that uh, are front of mind, like Anchorman or Step Brothers or The Hangover or... Wedding Crashers, other films that involved some of these bigger names. I mean, even Zoolander, I think, is a little bit more of a cult classic than this film that also stars Ben Stiller. So I went with a three for the industry, just kind of splitting the difference a little bit and giving it a little bit more credence. But I also think that the audience for this has kind of waned. And this is going to be one of those kind of forgotten films in about another five to ten years given that we couldn't even find it on streaming right now, and it's a universal movie. This should be a movie that's all the time played on Peacock right now, if anybody actually subscribed to that service, other than me for Premier League football. But the fact that you can't find it just probably means there isn't much of an audience to try and find these movies. So overall, I went with a 3.5 for audience, giving me a final total of 6.5. Well, I had, for Legacy, simply the fact is is that We had a second film four years later, and then another film uh, three or four years after that. Six years. We had a television show. We had a television show. It was a television show derived from this film. It didn't last very long, but there was a television show that was derived from this film about two and a half or three years after the fact. So it had some legs, but it has lost luster. So I wanted the 3.5 for the industry because I think it's still considered well among critics and it did have sequels and I can see influences of this type in other films, not significant, but at least some, the same kind of parent-child struggles. I think some of the remakes like the Ashton Kutcher version of uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner kind of played up this conflict more similar to this. The public, I think, is really... I mean, there's an entire generation that really doesn't know the film. For my generation, it was something more memorable, but even for that, I don't think this is the first comedy you think of when you're talking about comedies from that time frame or before. So I went with a two. So I've got a 3.5 and a 2, so 5.5 for Legacy. Well, that makes the math pretty easy on this one. It's a 6 average between the two of us. Impact significance, as I said, I was going to go quite a bit higher because I do think that there was a lot higher industry and audience for this movie at the time and within that five-year window, particularly given that there was a very successful sequel following this one. 
that actually outperformed the original. And it was kind of during that heyday where Ben Stiller was a comedy star yet before he kind of stopped really being an actor and then transitioned into now being a fairly successful director. I do think that given this is the third really successful movie that Ben Stiller had done up to that point, he did There's Something About Mary, he did Zoolander, and then he did this. It really sold him as a bankable movie star or at least comedic star in the ilk of some of the ones that we'd had up to that time, like an Adam Sandler or Jim Carrey. So I do think that was significant for the time. It cemented De Niro's comedic range after he'd already done Analyze This, and given that this is one of the most successful movies of his career and that he's recognized for a lot of other classic movies, for this to be the top of his career or one of the peaks, I think is significant. This proved Jay Roach, the director, could do something successful besides Austin Powers, and he's actually gone on to have a fairly significant career outside of just the franchise films that he's made, because he made all three Austin Powers movies, he made all three of this franchise, but he's done even things like Bombshell from a couple of years ago that was a significant movie and I think got some level of Oscar buzz. So for all three to have significant pillars of their career backed on this movie, I went with a four for the industry. And also, again, this was a big movie at the time. $330 million for a comedy? I know it was 2000 and it was a lot easier to make comedy movies, but I went with a five for the audience because I remember this being significant at the time. So I got a nine overall. I'm just going to mirror you for the most of the same reasons you just provided because I think that's exactly the situation. And I think that uh, the public really... Uh, bought into this film and was crazy about it. And I think the industry, it had decent reviews and uh, and it was a comedy, so you're not going to get the stellar reviews that you would normally get. So I went with four for the industry and five for the public. So the math is once again simple on this one. It's a nine. Novelty? There have been a lot of concepts of a meet-the-parents type movie, the being introduced to the parents, and I think that's why it's a bit recycled. Like I said, in order for this film to even be somewhat novel, you had to really hyper-exaggerate who the father-in-law character is, and that's why I think this becomes a Robert De Niro film more than it becomes a Ben Stiller film, even though you tell it through the point of view of the Ben Stiller character, and he's somewhat the audience avatar. But where this movie is somewhat novel, in my opinion, is on its execution on that and the perception of its two main stars hitting them in the right sweet spot of their careers at the time. Given that Robert De Niro had really only been in one comedy movie up to that point, and had been either an action star or had been a very serious drama actor up to that point, and I think some people consider him maybe one of the best actors ever, I think that... You forgot Rocky and Bullwinkle. That was not before these. I thought it was. I thought it was after. But, all right, well, it doesn't really matter. I don't think anybody remembers Rocky and Bullwinkle, except you, apparently. And with reason. I mean, ultimately, it's not going to get a lot of novelty because of the universality of the premise. But I didn't think I could go really lower than a five based on the execution of the movie. So I'm going to go with a five. I, I gave it higher marks for novelty because it the juxtaposition of going so over the top with De Niro's character... And then, I mean, Ben Stiller was the one who came up with the concept of making Greg a male nurse, which only further emphasized the disparity in their backgrounds and such to make the interplay greater. I think that's what the novelty relies on, is that great sense of tension between them because they come to the point some from two very vastly different places that makes it more. So I went with a 6.5 for novelty for just that extra contrast that's not that was different than most of these films of a similar ilk. Well, that's going to put us in classicness. I don't know if you want to go first here, but I have a lot of things to say about classicness, and part of it is on the backing of what you just said, because the definitions of masculinity in this film really are behind where we're at now. And one of them really has to do with the emphasis on the male nurse versus the very stoic, man-driven CIA guy and the juxtaposition of those two characters, that one's more empathetic 
and outgoing and caring, and the other one is very much a hard ass. I mean, I thought it was interesting that the movie was cited by the American Nurses Association as being pivotal in changing the perception of gender within nursing and saw a rise in male nurses accordingly. I mean, I could buy that. I definitely could. That's why I gave it a few higher marks because I think it, I mean, Ben Stiller was, was, it was comedic and whatever, but he wasn't a wuss. I mean, he didn't come across as a wolf. He just looked like a guy who was very uncomfortable and put in very awkward situations, was trying to deal with him the best he could. So I don't think it really portrayed him as wimpish by being a male nurse. I think what the idea was is is to show or to hold up the traditional stereotype concepts as being archaic and, and idiotic without any real basis in fact. And so to that extent, I think there's points up for classicness. Now, what I had problems with... Hold on for one second. I do think that is an important point and something I hadn't necessarily seen nor considered. So I'll give you that. I do also think, though, and part of the reason that I had some trouble with this is you put it in a good light by saying that it undermines some of the archaic structures of the old version of masculinity. But it still has jokes at the expense of being a male nurse. But I'll say one of the pivotal points about that particular part of the discussion is his reasoning for why he wants to be a male nurse. He had the option to be a doctor, and he describes it as, I wanted to be more patient-caring. So he is the more modern version of a professional male that is a lot more empathetic, that is a lot more, I would say, liberal in its democratization of that. And given that the the notion of men as being more in tune with their emotions in at least my generation and the generation behind me, I would say it's more representative of what we've become. And Jax is much more of the stereotypical version of, I guess, the generation ahead of you. Yes. I mean, you know, it there there are a lot of there are a lot of aspects of this film that that bother me, and it's the traditional male. What, of course, was one of the first things that the father mentions is he starts asking about the car because that's immediately what guys do is start talking about the car they're driving. Again, a fair point. And I'm, I'm like, I, I am not a car person. I like a car that's comfortable and that drives well. I don't give a rat's rear end about the rest of it. It's not about cars for me. I just don't care. I don't understand why people find them so glamorous or so important. And having a lot of power in it, I, I don't need that. I think I've got enough power in my shoulders, and I don't need much else. So I don't get that. I also have a trouble, I guess, being part of that stereotypical male aspect of loving cars. It is not something that I gravitated to, and it's probably by virtue of nurture because you were not necessarily into them. Like, there are certain cars that I like the look of from an aesthetic point of view. Like, I really admired a emerald green Camaro that I used to drive past all the time while I was in college in lacrosse, and I'd see every time I went to the grocery store. But that's just more of a look thing than it is anything to do with engine power or all the other stuff that are supposedly stereotypical male obsessions. I love sports and am obsessed with sports. And I love a lot of other things that are stereotypically male, but that's just one thing that's never really appealed to me. But let me just take a second to point out some of the other minor things since we've kind of gotten involved in the bigger parts of this discussion. Things that have aged poorly. Nanny cams. Yeah. Call in voicemail. Gabe Fokker being a running joke of the movie, attitudes towards marijuana, and saying bomb on an airplane pre-9-11. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't think these collectively knock it down very far for me, but they are things that really stick out for a comedy that's really of the moment and didn't even age more than five years well. Yeah, I understand. And the gay bashing and the gay jokes were were very offensive at this point in time. 
and, and as far as the attitudes towards marijuana, there is still strong attitudes about marijuana, especially among people who are in law enforcement and who are of my generation or older, and they will never go away until they do. Okay, but that's a very small segment of the population. I think even in your age group, probably 50% of you are indifferent. That's not an attitude that would have happened 20 some years ago. I was a little more reticent uh, 20 years ago, I'll admit, but I mean, it wasn't like I really cared. I had friends who smoked and I didn't care. I used to hang around. We In college, we had a group of guys would sit around and have these philosophical and political discussions. They would pass a bong and I would just drink booze because it didn't interest me. I already have enough problems breathing. I didn't need the smoke. And I think that was more than anything. The The one thing I will indicate too, though, that I gave just a very slight bump up. I think the uh, portrayal of uh, airline personnel in this film is still poignant today. They still do some of the same stupid things. You know, the scene where, you know, they're calling uh, for boarding. You know, he's the only one left. No, you have to wait until your zone is called. I've seen that. I've literally seen that. And uh, so that, so I guess coming to a, I I have a seven total for the classicness. Um, I had to give big points down for some of the things you pointed out, but I think there were positives there. I think it kind of undermined the old traditional concept of male, uh, of masculinity uh, through this film. And so that's why I gave it points up for that. So I'm a little bit torn. I think all of the things I mentioned beforehand would lead me to stay with my original score, although you've made a couple of good points that I think could almost knock it up a further point. A lot of the small things that maybe are a little bit more problematic for me are still there. Again, I think this movie doesn't age well from some of those things, and that's probably why this isn't nearly as classic as it probably should be, given its universality. And I still think this is a... Fairly funny movie, even if there are parts of it that really stick out to me. I'm sure if I was part of the LGBT community myself or identified with that group, it might be a much more problematic movie for me. But I originally had a 6.5. I'm debating whether to move it up to a 7.5. Because I think a 7 is too neutral, given that that's the very baseline point that I give when I'm not sure that it deserves either credit for being ahead of its time, nor has it aged poorly. So I would like to at least put my foot on one side or the other. And I would guess that because if I judge this again in, let's say, five years, it's probably something I would even be more off-put by, just given where things have aged. And that's why comedy is so hard as far as classic comedy. I'll go with the 6.5, but I could see, given where you're at in your appreciation for it, and again, you made some very good points, that I could, at least at this point in time, move it up to a 7.5. I'll just do it for the future-facing discussion for myself and just go with a 6.5. So that'll put it at a 6.75 between the two of us. And uh, if I didn't give the score for the last category, you had a 5, or I had a 5, And you had a 6.5, so that was a 5.75 for that category. Rewatchability, this is probably one of my top 100 favorite movies to watch. I still love watching this film, and if it were on cable every so often, I would definitely sit and watch it, especially if it's past like the first 15 minutes or so, that that's all that setup BS. I'll go with a 9 here. I went with an 8 because I still enjoy the film, but again... It's this is a, a film that's best when you don't have or aren't watching it all the time on a regular basis. Having it every six to twelve months would be more enjoyable than trying to watch it more often than that, because I think the the comedy and the jokes come across crisper. I think they get stale with repetition. So I think an eight is perfectly fine there. So that would be eight point five, wouldn't it? Very good math. Thank you. All right, so then for audience score, we had an 87% for Google users, a 79% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 8.3. So to recap the categories, we had a 6 for Legacy, 
a 9 for Impact Significance, a 5.75 for Novelty, 6.75 for Classicness, 8.5 for Rewatchability, and an 8.3 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of 44.3, and that would put it currently between Pretty Woman and Top Gun, the original Top Gun, not Top Gun Maverick. All right, let's go to remaining questions then. Does this film end a little too neatly? I mean, how is Greg removed from an airplane but faces almost no consequences? Well, Greg says at the point that, did you arrange this? Well, yeah, he did. I mean, I think, yeah, there was some problems, but I think he was removed from the plane primarily because Jack asked him to be removed from the plane. See, I'm not sure I buy that because I've seen people that are removed from airplanes for being that disgruntled to a stewardess. It's, yeah, but you're you're judging it in a more modern term. This is pre-9-11. Fair. So I think there was a lot more leeway. People were bigger dicks to airline personnel back then. Well, that's because people are still dicks to any service personnel, and I just will never understand it and be constantly embarrassed by it whenever my parents do it. Did you have any remaining questions? No, I mean, it's hard to have a lot of remaining questions since there are two sequels that uh, answer a lot of the open-ended questions in this film. You know, how how long did it take before Jack actually accepted uh, Greg? And you know that from the next film. You know that from the last 10 minutes of this movie. Yeah, I guess. He has to come to terms. Again, it's the cathartic moment of this movie is Dina telling him off then him seeing his daughter just pleading with Greg on the phone or leaving him that message, and then him going to the airport and then proposing to Greg. Yeah. So I, I definitely think that the cathartic moment of this is, is already there. But to me, the biggest leftover question of this, and it's probably the biggest plot hole of this movie, you have seen a very close-knit relationship between Jack and Jinx. You have seen that Jack has trained this cat to urinate and defecate in a toilet. And yet, you think you can pass off just any ordinary cat for any length of time to buy yourself time, and that's somehow going to save your bacon? I don't know why he thought he could pass off just any regular old cat, given the degree to which you've seen this cat perform up till this junction in the movie. But it makes no sense to me when you could have just as easily stayed out and searched and said, I just cannot find him. I'm not sure what's going on. And there would have been much less vitriol for him actually telling the truth. It's the part of the film that makes the least amount of sense. I I understand your point. I think he was relying on the fact that everybody was in such turmoil and getting involved in the wedding and such. No one was paying that close of attention to the cat once the cat was back. And that is what he was counting on. And I think that's how Jack didn't pick up that it was not the actual cat. Well, but the whole point of finding the cat was for it to be the ring bearer. And they were in the middle of doing the... He continued to look for the cat. He was on the phone trying to describe the cat to the animal shelter. You're, You're not letting me finish. They were in the middle of the rehearsal. Why wouldn't you have put the pillow on Mr. Jinx and tried to have the cat be the ring bearer since that was the whole point of finding the cat? And immediately you should know if he's serving as the ring bearer and he doesn't perform his job, that's not the real Mr. Jinx. (laughs) Yeah. He was trying to find the cat. I'm sorry. It's the biggest flaw in this movie. Okay. I understand from a structural standpoint that you, in order to get that big finish where you have the whole revelatory thing and all the lies are shared and revealed so you can have that cathartic moment and it moves the plot along, but it makes the least sense. Well, your complaints are the same problem that I always point out with your mother who doesn't like a family guy because the dog talks. And I'm like, yeah, because oftentimes you see rabbits and ducks who talk too. I think you're trying to make, I, I know your point, but. These aren't, those things are comparable. Yes, it is, because this is just a transitional point. Yes, it's a whole, okay, but it's a comedy. And the holes in comedies are much more forgivable 
than they are in dramas. Well, trust me, I'm still going to enjoy the film regardless. This is a comment out of love because, again, this is one of my top 100 favorite films to watch. But still, it is a fairly significant plot hole, if you're asking me. Okay, that's fine. Fair enough. I probably watched this movie 30-some times. It's just something I'm like, this doesn't make much sense. (laughs) All right, well, that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnyduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.